a few passages to start. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will go, grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Matthew 24. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. 2 Thessalonians 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. 1 Timothy 4. Lastly, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, 2 Timothy 4. So all these verses point to a dreadfully tragic occurrence and a truth that we're told is going to happen, a falling away, a rebellion, an apostasy, defection. Um, some of the younger kids in here, apostasy means the abandonment of your faith, the giving up of your religion. And I know that there has been apostasy throughout every generation, but I cannot help but wonder, could it be that we are witnessing that final separation? Are we seeing the real-time fulfillment of this apostasy? Perhaps. Perhaps. We certainly know and can see that many so-called Christians are admittedly walking away from their faith. Not just the church, but their faith entirely. There's no doubt about that. So the question is why? Why are so many walking away? I'm going to get into a research that was done here. But in that research, the reason why is not clear. But I would argue that for those of us with eyes to see and ears to hear, do we really need for a study to tell us the reason why? Don't think we do. And it's a hard truth. I teach my kids, I try, <laughs> to take extreme ownership of their life in every aspect. I, uh, a Navy SEAL, former Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink, um, he's a hard man. Um, I, don't, I don't know if he's a believer or not, but he's a disciplined, hard man. And he talks about owning every aspect of your life. And as a church, we should be no different. And I would say the reason that so many are falling away is because we have failed corporately in discipleship. And I believe that is a result of modernity, of what our church has become. Um, again, <laughs> I'm going to rag on the church a little bit here, but please hear me. I know all you here understand my heart, and hopefully those watching and listening understand what I'm saying. There are amazing churches out there throughout the world and in America. There are who have been nothing but galvanized through 
the darkness that we are in today. But I don't think we can argue that that is the trend. The trend is the opposite. The majority is the opposite. Oh, and it's heartbreaking. I don't remember if I said this already, so I'm just going to say it again if I did. Forgive me. Um, because of our modernity, we have focused on making the church self-serving, making it mega, or a mecca, if you will. Um, it's a modern business model. The church, the corporate organization that it has become, cares more about the building, the business model, the income, the cash flow, than the actual body of Christ. And it's why we are failing. And it's why so many are walking away. Because they came to hear a cheap gospel to get their ears tickled. And it's not their fault. Because they don't know any better. So we need to own that. It also is no surprise why the church has become what it has become. In America, I can't speak to everywhere else because I'm not there and I don't know. I've heard amazing testimonies. Um, China, Brazil, uh, of just an explosion of faith. But regardless, that's neither here nor there at the moment. Um, it's not a surprise why we have become what we become. We are so deep in the midst of Babylon and we have been in exile for so long. Godlessness abounds, distractions and sinful lifestyles entangle and ensnare believers on a constant basis. <sighs> We've abandoned accountability with one another, intentional community. So I'm so thankful for this group. Currently, give me one second, I'm going to take a drink. I would say there is one, you could call it two groups, primarily at the forefront of leading people astray, and that is progressive Christianity and deconstructionism. For those of you who don't know, what is progressive Christianity? Well, it's a doctrine of demons. They elevate Nuance. How, how many of you have been hearing nuance so much more in regards to Christian faith and, and prayer and understanding and theology? Nuance. Oh, it's so much more nuanced than that. No. They elevate uncertainty about definite things within the Bible. Those who practice progressive Christianity claim to be attempting to bring progress to Christianity, to the faith. Progress toward what they believe is a more inclusive, authentic, charitable, just version of Christianity. They abandon core beliefs, such as the deity of Christ, virgin birth, the physical resurrection, the infallibility of Scripture, and so many more. And toss them up into the wind as, oh, not, not that important. That's debatable. Oh, that's, that's divisive and offensive. Or it's not very inclusive nuanced, right? They say we have to deconstruct what the church taught us all these years and reconstruct to a more current understanding Christianity, a more inclusive. They call this having an open mind. Well, great Christian apologist from the past, G.K. Chesterton, once said, Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. We don't discuss that which is already decided. We don't claim nuance to core pillars of our Christian faith. If you never close your mind or decide on these things. You open yourself to all manners of deception, and you open yourself to being devoured by our enemy, the devil. We would remember Ephesians 4. They are tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine and human cunning. 
they in polarity to what Romans 12 says are conformed to this world and they conform forgive me I'm trying to read my notes they attempt to conform God's unchanging word to the ever-changing societal norms of whatever culture they find themselves in don't get it wrong Well, let me back up a little bit. It's tough because these progressive Christians, when you listen to them, like truly listen to them without like a, like a righteous anger, you see just how truly deceived they are and how they authentically think they are being loving and that, that this is the true version of love. They're kind and they are caring, but they are so either deceived or, or just wickedly leading people astray. There could not be a more prideful, arrogant, self-serving, deceitful, abominable, execrable heresy against the authentic Christianity. And we need to pray for them. That's something I struggle with, is praying for my enemies, God's enemies. So just some statistics. I'm probably going to go through this a little faster than I want, but otherwise we're going to be here a while. Barna Group. Is anybody familiar with Barna Group? A premier um, research group for the church. Um, They did a study as of 2020 um, that encompassed 20 years. So 2000 to 2020. So I would be so curious to see what the past two years how these numbers have changed, fluctuated. We don't have that. So as of 2000, there were 45. Let me pause back up. In this study, they give three categories. Practicing Christians, those who agree strongly that their faith is very important to their lives and attend church and are involved in the body within the past month. Um, Non-practicing Christians, I don't know what that is. It just says, Self-identified Christians who don't qualify as practicing. Um, So I guess we're led to believe that they are authentic believers and then non-Christians. 2,000. 45% of Americans identified as practicing Christians. With 33 million people, roughly, it's about 148.5 million Christians. In 2020, that dropped to 25%, nearly cut in half, all the way down to 82.5%. That's 66 million individuals walking away from practicing Christianity, 3.3 million a year. Non-practicing Christians actually did increase 35% from 2000 to 43 in 2020, an increase of 26.4 million. So assuming these are authentic believers, that sign is good. But to... uh, Put Debbie Downer on it again. Non-Christians increased from 20% to 30%. An increase of 33 million Christians in those 20 years. Or non-Christians in those 20 years. They include some charts. I will just pause on these for a little bit and continue so that if you go back and watch it and you want to look at it, you can. Okay, can you go back real, real back? Yeah, something. I will stop on this one because I think it answers a large question. Three questions, all for um, Christians. They give age groups and then self-identifying Christians and practicing. This middle one, I'm just going to focus on that one. It says the Bible, excuse me, is totally accurate in all its teachings that should be without a doubt 100% across the board maybe 99 and and in that instance you're just so fresh you don't know the difference two out of three practicing Christians claim that and only 40% of self-identifying Christians claim that no wonder we're walking away Vodibachum says it best the modern church is producing passionate passionate People with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. Again, not all churches. 
but the trend line is definitely there. I I like your tone in this. It's not going to get better. Or the Jesus they created. Yeah. I had you in my notes. I was going to, I'll still plug you. If I could elaborate, for decades, Christian modernity has emphasized the emotional experiences of Christianity over theology and general biblical intellect. We have focused on the steadfast love of God without focusing on the seriousness of sin and repentance. The modern church adopted an incomplete understanding of God, of Christ, of the gospel, and of the Bible as a whole. Brings to mind Matthew 7. Depart from me, I never knew you. There truly is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. The church today, many within the church, are no different than the Israelites back at Sinai. Even after hearing the goodness of God and being delivered from Egypt and experiencing him coming down and engulfing Sinai, they crafted for themselves their own idol. Because of the leftover Babylon within their hearts, it was still there and they had not rooted it out. They did not rid their homes of their leaven. Like my wife just said, instead of the Jesus, sometimes it's often not even the Jesus. It's a false, fabricated Jesus. And they say, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. They say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. Never knew you. In studying this, um, I was so blessed to come across a couple uh, interviews and, and a sermon that John Brevere, Bavere, Brevere, whatever, did. He wrote a book on this topic that I'm going to be getting to. And, you know, agree with him, disagree with him. I, I'm sure I do have some disagreements with him, but man. He nailed it on the head on this. Um, but in the sermon he's doing, he talks about a time he had back in the 90s where he went and visited Jim Baker. Does anybody know who Jim Baker is? Okay. Yeah. So I, I didn't know. But yes, he was uh, back in the late 1900s. Um, had. <laughs> yeah. He boasted the claim of the largest ministry in the world uh, and fell horribly. He was convicted of mail fraud. He was caught up in adulterous scandals, sentenced to 45 years in prison, um, which was then reduced to five after some time being in prison. But in prison, he read one of Bevere's books, and he requested that he come see him. So John goes to his prison. He talks to him. And Jim Baker says, John, this prison sentence was God's mercy on me. If I would have continued in sin... He says he self-admittedly would have ended up in hell. And so, in talking to him, John asks, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? What happens next is fascinating. Jim Baker says, I never fell out of love with Jesus. I loved him all the way through. John Revere, being astonished and perplexed, he asks, what do you mean? We all saw what happened. You were caught up in adulterous affairs, you, you were sentenced to prison. What do you mean you still loved him? And here is the root of it all. He says, I didn't fear God. I love Jesus. I didn't fear God. There are millions of American Christians just like me. They love Jesus, but they don't fear God. America and I, I'm not, I'm not going to say America, just the church has lost the fear of the Lord. They love the Jesus they don't know very well. If they truly knew who Jesus was, 
they truly understood the entirety of Scripture, how Genesis to Revelation are all one story that point to the necessity of Christ's salvation due to our wretched sin and fallen state, if they truly understood the coming judgment on all who do not believe and confess that Jesus is Lord, if they truly understood the seriousness that comes with taking the name of the Lord, which so many have done in vain, they understood the seriousness of the Christian faith, then, and only then, would they, would we know how to fear the Lord. The American church, this is one of the things uh, John Bevere said, and he's been around way longer than me. He said the church has experienced the swing of the pendulum. He says back in the 50s, we were caught up in legalism, the letter of the law, and the Jesus movement happened, and, and that was good, but haven't handled it very well. And it swung all the way to the other side to lawlessness. And we need to find that balance right in the middle, the fear of the Lord. Our main text for tonight is Ecclesiastes 12, 11 through 14. I'll read it. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd... My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So obviously this is Solomon, who God says is the wisest man to have ever lived. Sorry, one second. And he starts out saying that the words of the wise, so many of the words that, that God gave Solomon are like goads. Does anybody know what goads are? Yeah, so the, the, they're those long pointed sticks, and it says they're used for prodding and guiding oxen while plowing. Well, that's important because oxen while plowing needed a correct course heading. Words of the wise are like goads for us. Prodding, which is uncomfortable, but it doesn't kill you, and it gets you back in alignment with what God wants for your life. Words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. By being firmly fixed with nails, this imagery that it gives us, it tells us that it provides complete moral and intellectual stability. One shepherd being the source. That's God. That's our Father. It's not Solomon. It's our Father. Um, I'll skip ahead a little bit. For time's sake, the closing. We should all have this memorized. It's so good. It's the conclusion for all life. Solomon has heard everything there is to be heard. He's experienced everything there is to experience. He's seen it all. He's done it all. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the reason for life, the duty, the required action for genuine faith rests on fearing God and keeping his commandments. What is that? That is faith and works. Why? Why do these things? <laughs> it says, because God will bring everything known, unknown, our actions, our thoughts, the intentions of our hearts, good or bad, all will be brought to judgment. So fear God. Do right by him. 
Note, it does not say fear men. Remember Isaiah 2, verse 22, it says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what account is he? And it doesn't say follow man's understanding. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. This is the apex of all wisdom. The wisest thing to have ever been spoken, written, or heard. I, children, I hope, for those of you who are in here, I hope if there's anything you take home tonight, it's this. Fear God. Do what he says. Okay. Great, Mr. Logan. That's awesome. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, Yeah, okay, never mind. I was going to ask you guys, but I'm running way behind. So, many in the church today say that as, as new covenant believers, right? New covenant believers. Fear of God is a reverence and an awe, a general respect for God. I don't know. Are we as new covenant believers free from fearing God? Are we free from fearing him different? Do we fear him differently than the old covenant believers? Does the fear of the Lord have a consistency from beginning to end? Well, let's find out. So what is the fear of the Lord? Wouldn't you know it? The Bible lays it out for us, plain as day. Deuteronomy 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in his ways, to love him, serve, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So this fear, this word fear, anytime you see this fear of the Lord within Scripture, it is plainly defined as to be afraid and to stand in awe of, and to revere and honor and respect, and to be in dread of. Reverence and awe? That's more than that. Like I said, this is the same definition, explanation, anytime we see fear the Lord, fear God, fear of God, fear Him. This is what it means. So what is the fear of the Lord? Plainly, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him with your whole being, to keep his commandments, to do what he says, knowing that it is for our good and that he requires it of us. John Brevere, in one of his the sermons, he said this, and I just thought it was, it was so well, well articulated. He says, to fear God is to be fully in awe of God, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. What is important to him becomes important to us. We honor, esteem, value, respect, and tremble before him more than anything or anyone else. It is when we literally take on the heart of God. That is so well said. If I could add anything to it, I will, I would say that to fear the Lord is to fully comprehend both his love and his wrath, his mercy and his judgment. To fear God is to rejoice in his salvation and to tremble at his holiness. It, it would be interesting to compare those uh, survey numbers with child behavior issues, I bet you would see a parallel. That as parents stopped being parents and started being friends of their children, mm. that the fear of the, of the Lord and, and the Christian values dropped off at the same rate. Because that's a, yeah, that's a good point. Fear, I feared my father. My father was a hard man. I, I, I feared him. Yes. 
because I knew what he was capable of. Yes. And when you've got beliefs that, oh, when you die, if you don't believe, the lights just go out and it's over. They, they've, they've gotten rid of the whole lake of fire and, and punishment. So the sting isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to fear God when you don't believe that there's eternal damnation. Yep. And, yep. Very good point. Very good point. Jesus loves you. Here's a flower. Hmm. Love that line, to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. Well, what does he love? What does he hate? Wouldn't you know it? Scripture lays it out. Yes? No, this this section below it, that that's Deuteronomy 12. I'm almost certain of it. Oh no! Yes, you're right. It's Deuteronomy. Is it? It is Deuteronomy 12. Is it not? Okay, I. It's Deuteronomy. I took the 12. 12 through 13 from Ecclesiastes and did not change that off. Forgive me, I, that's a typo. So what is it? 10. It's in Deuteronomy 10. That's a typo, sorry. Thank you, thank you. Yes, I err. It's 10, 12 through 13? Man, I was close. I was real close. <laughs> anyway. Um, so love what he love, hates what he hates. Scripture lays that out. Um, man, now I'm going to be nervous that all my, my uh, numbers are off. <laughs> I know it's in the Bible. If the numbers are off, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Um, this is... Well, I'll just read it. It says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. We love what he loves. We hate what he hates. God loves righteousness. I would say most people in the church today would say, Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. I, yes, we love righteousness. I think we can all get on the same page. Hates lawlessness. Okay, well, what is lawlessness? Sin. Yes. 1 John 3. Sin is lawlessness. Ooh, that one's harder. We like our sin. We love our sin. We tolerate our sin. We tolerate others' sin. Ooh, that one's tougher. I believe many in the church have missed this. Many, to be fully humble, I would say even, I won't speak for you guys, I'll speak for myself. We don't even realize how sinful we are. The fear of God for us today should be so much more than a simple reverence and awe. I think reverence and awe, I don't know, like for you guys, Example, when I think of reverence and awe, I think when I look up at the sky at night and see the stars, see the works of his hands, I see the, 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 his creation, the mountains he's made, that, wow, that is reverence and awe. But to think of myself in the presence of the Most High God, just reverence and awe is not what comes to mind. It'd benefit all of us to remember exactly who God is. Consider when He spoke creation into existence and what Isaiah 40, verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? It would be beneficial to remember the flood he brought upon the earth because of our wickedness and there was only a handful who were righteous. It would benefit us to Remember the supernatural plagues that he brought upon the oppressors of his people in Egypt. To remember, 
I'm not gonna, I, I won't read Exodus 19 because I'm just running short on time, but you can read it there. Um, how Mount Sinai, when they came to it, God came down. He engulfed it in fire and smoke. It shook and trembled, and the lightning and thunder blasted, and it terrified the Israelites. And if anyone or anything even touched it, they would have immediately died. It would benefit us to remember the promises of his judgment toward the wicked and unrepentant sinners and how the wicked have no fear of God. Malachi 4. I love this verse. It's hard, but man, is it encouraging. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But... For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Remember Psalm 58, 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance, God's vengeance on the wicked. He, God, will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Psalm 36. The choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. It would benefit us to remember who God says he is in Exodus 34. Remember, this is after the golden calf. This is after the punishment. It says, Yahweh, Yahweh. God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? Oh, when we consider and ponder and understand his mercy and grace, and compassion, and his patience, and anger, and his steadfast love that endures for those who love him, how that is balanced perfectly by his justice, and his wrath, and destruction on all wickedness. When we consider all these things, and the rest of truth within scripture, it is then that we understand what it means to truly fear God. To simplify it, you could say that we tremble at the holiness of God and we rejoice that he is loving and good. The Israelites, in the presence of God at Sinai, remember I just said they trembled when he showed up. Hebrews 12 tells us that Moses trembled with fear when he was in the presence of God. Isaiah, when he has a vision of the holiness of God, he just gets done giving all these woes to the ungodly and the wicked in their midst and in the land, rightfully so, but he gets a vision of the holiness of God. And he doesn't say, woe is them. You know, he says, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Tremble and rejoice. Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 22, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Isaiah 66. But this is the one to whom I, this is God, whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, it goes on, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Now, that Philippians 2 is, is really interesting to me. That phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Man, what, 
Okay, well, what is salvation? Our salvation is our justification. We have nothing to do with justification. That's, that's Christ. We have nothing to do with that. But working that out, that's sanctification. We've got skin in the game when it comes to sanctification. We've got a duty to perform. Hmm. That's just... I don't think many Christians are familiar with that passage, understand that passage, understand how to explain that to anybody if they were asked. And again, note, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, another uh, thing that John Bevere had that I thought was really good, just a, a bullet point list for those who like taking notes. Fear of the Lord is radical obedience. It's to obey God instantly, to obey God when it doesn't make sense, to obey God even if it hurts, to obey God if we can't see any benefit, to obey God to completion. To do what he says, knowing it's for our good. Align ourselves with Scripture and ultimately God's will no matter what. We have no better example of this than with Abraham in Genesis 22. We know the story. God tells him, go take your son and sacrifice him. And he obeys. He's going to go through with it. And right before he does, God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Fun tidbit. This is the first example in Scripture where we, someone, rightly fear God. It's the first time this is brought up, and it's such a great example. It was radical. I can't imagine. And I love what the ESV uh, study Bible, the note they have on this. I just love what it says, so I'll read it. It says, Abraham's action confirms his faithful obedience to God. While Abraham's faith was earlier the means by which God counted him as righteous, that faith is now active along with his works. And the faith, is, the faith is completed by his works. And that is encompassed there in James 2. It gives some more insight if you want to read that. So that his faith resulted in obedience, which is, the, which is its expected outcome. His fear of God was proven in his radical obedience. His fear of God brought forth the working out of his faith. And I bet you he was trembling. Hmm. Faith is active with works. Faith is completed by works. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is what it means to fear the Lord. So, we know what the fear of the Lord is. How? How do we learn to do this? Okay, I can understand it, but to, to learn how, that's a different thing entirely. Well, wouldn't you know it? The Bible lays it out. I really hope this is the right, uh, right verse, chapter. Pretty sure it is. So do we. Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place that he will choose. You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. We understand and learn how to fear God by reading, not the, yes, read the Bible, but the law. That's, that's, now, Logan, you legalist, you old covenant goober, we're under the new covenant. The law, we're under the law, we're under the law of Christ. Well, I would say, without trying to be patronizing, if you don't understand 
<laughs> that there is no difference between the law of Christ and the law. Yes, read the law. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Yes, by keeping the law, which is perfect, which is righteousness. And again, as if Brian has not drilled it into our heads enough already, not the letter, but the spirit. The law is perfect and sure and right and pure and true and altogether righteous. And through it, we gain understanding of how to fear the Lord. Proverbs 2 goes on. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Immerse yourself. We must immerse ourselves in God's word. All of it. All of it. For it all works together in complete harmony. Okay, that's how we fear it. Why do we fear the Lord? Why? Well, wouldn't you know it? The Bible lays it out. Deuteronomy. I'm just going to say Deuteronomy because now I'm <laughs> nervous. Oh, that they had such a heart. It's all Deuteronomy these days. As this always. To fear me and to keep my commandments. Why? That it might go well with them and their descendants forever. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. That he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. I'm going to go through these fairly quick. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. We just read that one. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and makes known them, to them his covenant. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Psalm 103 has a couple. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It goes on. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, 
that one may turn away from the snares of death. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Women, you have your own promise as to why. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Lastly, 2 Corinthians 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I want to sit on that one for just a little bit. If you'll remember, immediately prior, Paul is talking about being a temple, the living God, Christ in us. Hence, showing the importance of why we cleanse ourselves. Christ in us. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And this brings holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, I am already not a man of many words, but this leaves me speechless. It's too good to comprehend. Our holiness is completed through Christ in our fear of him. Not because of what we do. Our fear in him, we can't point to us, I fear God, he made me holy, completely holy. No. That is God working in us, completing our holiness because we fear him. I hope you can see why we fear God. Those are just some of the promises. I'm sure there are more. <sighs> With all that said, I, I, I will say this. There are still a few passages that are a bit confusing. We see them. Fear God, fear not, fear me. Do, don't, don't fear, be afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. It, it just it can be a bit much at times. So I want to take some of those main ones and explain them. First one being, again, back to Sinai, Exodus 20. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, um, I'll go on. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Right. Got it. Crystal clear. John Piper has a really great commentary on this passage. Yes, I've made it known that I have strong disagreements with John Piper, but he nails it on this. He says, oh, how we need to meditate on such perplexing texts. Do not fear. You are being tested. You pass the test only if you don't fear. Yet God desires that the fear of him always be before your eyes. You pass the test by fearing the Lord. The text provides the distinctions necessary to make sense out of this. The fear that Moses was telling them to get rid of was the fear of coming close to God and hearing his voice. The fear that Moses wanted them to keep before their eyes was that God is fearfully power powerful and opposed to sin. The fear of kindling God's powerful wrath against sin ought not to drive us away from God, but to God for mercy. Excellent clarity. Very well said. Fear ought to drive us to God for his mercy. The biggest one. Perfect love casts out all fear. 1 John 4. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also sorry as he is so also are we in this world there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out 
fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, so many people point to this and they say, see, we don't need to fear God the way you're telling us to. You don't need to tremble at him. You don't need to be afraid of him. You don't need to be in dread of what he can do. New covenant, perfect love. There's a problem there. What's the context of this? What's the context? The day of judgment. Hallelujah. We don't have to fear God on the day of judgment. Because we feared him now. We feared him rightly now. And as a result, we are not under the condemnation if we are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. Yes, Christ's love is perfect. And when we immerse ourselves in it and fully understand the reality of Christ's love and justice, we gain a right fear of him and we are freed from fearing his Wrath. Praise the Lord. Okay, okay. What about Jesus? Surely, surely, Jesus, meek and mild, right? What the church has made him into. Gentle and lowly. Surely Jesus contradicts what you have to say about fearing him that way. The Jesus they don't know very well. Isaiah 11. It's talking about Jesus. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and... This blew me away. The fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus delights himself in the fear of God. Jesus does, so should we. WWJD, right? I say that because my son has a bunch of bracelets that say WWJD. Okay. Fair. What, let's, what about at his return? Revelation. He's, he's coming to, to save us, right? We just covered this in Romans 14. Goes, another angel came. I'll, I'll continue. It says, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. Yes, Jesus is coming back and we're told, Fear him because his judgment is here. Later on, Revelation 19, this is it. He's won. Babylon has fallen. Heaven is rejoicing. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Jesus speaks from the throne and he says, Praise God, you, my servants, who fear me. And if this hasn't done it for you, let's go back to when he was on earth. Matthew. This is Jesus. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Remember Ecclesiastes 12. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me 
I also will deny before my Father in heaven. You can also find this passage in Luke 12. It's a little bit different wording, but the message is the same. Jesus, the Messiah, who was in the beginning, who spoke and it was, who was the embodiment and total fulfillment of the law, who in his own words claims before Abraham was, I am, who consumed Sinai with his presence, who was sent in love, to save all who would repent of their sins and believe in him. Who paid the highest price of redemption for those whom he brought forth from the dust of the earth. Those from the dust who, in our rebellion, defied the thrice holy God and his commands, thus bringing the curse of death upon us. Yet, in his sovereignty, he provided a way of restoration to his perfect holiness. He who maintains the order of the universe and the existence of all life. He who with joy set before him endured wrath so that we would not have to. He who came as the sacrificial lamb and is returning as the roaring lion to judge the living and the dead. That Jesus. He says, fear me. And he goes on. Because he and he alone has power and authority to cast body and soul into hell forever. And yet, he says we are valued and our salvation is secure in him. Fear not. We don't have to fear eternal destruction. Just awe and reverence. It's a bit more than that. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Jesus is ours. Blessed assurance. I want to close with Romans 11. Says then, and this is this is talking about being grafted in, we as Gentiles. Then you will say, branches were broken off, so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has power to grant them in again. Hmm. God saved us. Don't be proud. Have humility. Have eternal gratitude. Fear God. Kindness and severity. I think that's a direct correlation to Exodus 34, who God says he is. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness for those who love him and who are obedient to him, but deals so severely with those who reject him as their God. Fear God. Keep his commandments. The key for all of life. Not new age practice that's crept into the church. Not having an open mind on rock-solid foundational pillars of our faith, not following your heart, not contemplative prayer, not the pursuit of happiness, not deconstruction, not progressive agendas, not declaring and decreeing, not manifesting, faith and works, justification and sanctification.
fear and obedience. You want freedom from sin? Fear God. Freedom from depression? Fear God. Freedom from ungodly fear? Fear God. Freedom from hurt? Fear God. Freedom from self-hate? Freedom from all that entangles and snares and keeps us from God? Freedom from gossip? Freedom from hate? You want to learn how to forgive? Fear God. You want to know God more intimately? God, I want to know you. Fear God. You want to honor him with your life above all else? Fear God. If you want to obtain the most noble character there is, fear God. If you want to walk in the freedom of Christ and to be freed from the bondage of our curse, fear God and do what he says. The church needs to hear this message. It's not mine. I didn't come up with it. It's God's. The apex of all wisdom. Oh, if the modern church and its pastors would preach from books like Ecclesiastes more often and Job and say these hard things. Yeah, they wouldn't make the money they're making today. But how many souls would be saved?